everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank one of our sponsors. That is our good friends at Precision Pro Golf. Precision Pro Golf is proud to announce the launch of the smartest, most personalized rangefinder ever, the R1 Smart Rangefinder. Available for limited pre-order at precisionprogolf.com. The R1 Smart Rangefinder is the rangefinder reinvented, combining the functions of a laser, GPS, and cell phone all into one device. At its core, the R1 Smart Rangefinder is a premier rangefinder, but once you pair it to the powerful Precision Pro app on your smartphone, the R1 helps golfers see the course in a completely new way. Listen to all these features. Slope-adjusted distances, GPS distance to the front, center, and back of the green, wind assist, which measures the effect the wind will have on each shot. I don't even know how they came up with that. And the Find My Precision Pro function, probably will be my favorite function. It alerts you when your rangefinder has been left behind, meaning you'll never lose your rangefinder again. I've almost done this so many times already. Uh, shout out to all the bag staff that run it out to me. But the most innovative feature to the R1 Smart Rangefinder is Precision Pro's game-changing new MySlope technology. MySlope creates a customized measurement that's specific to you and your environment by combining a golfer's unique ball data with real-time weather data. A golfer's launch angle, ball speed, and spin rate are combined with the temperature, altitude, and humidity to create a distance that's tailored to you and nobody else. Because if it isn't personalized, it isn't precise. The R1 Smart Rangefinder, the Rangefinder Reinvented, is available for limited pre-order at precisionprogolf.com. Order today because inventory is limited. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Now on to this week's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. My name is Randy. I am joined actually no more than a foot away from me in my Denver apartment, Mr. Tron Carter, TC. How are you, sir? Randy, your loft apartment. It's a lot. Yeah, it is a little bit. And, and it's not really an apartment, maybe more of like a, like, it's not my condo, but it's somebody's condo. In a trendy neighborhood here in Denver, I can confirm that Randy has landed on his feet out here. <laughs> I took an Uber over here from from the hotel, and um, Uber driver said, "This is this is the spot. There's a trendy ice cream place right down the street. <laughs> yeah, a couple uh, really nice restaurants. Yes, Every, everybody familiar with Denver will know will know the trendy ice cream spot. Yeah. But, uh, no, I'm I'm glad you come out here and see it. You can report back to the boys that." Uh, you know the the West Coast office is is doing okay. Our baby boy's all grown up. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, well, and I I went to a place uh, this morning, uh, the Wild. You got which I don't think you've checked out yet. It was a block away from my hotel. Just um, had a, I had an espresso and then it was a cocktail bar. <laughs> 
couple cocktails before <laughs> 10 o'clock a.m. Hey. Went home and took a nap after <laughs> I plowed through my inbox. I'm on vacation this weekend. Exactly. Uh, you and your you and your beautiful wife Alex are out for a, a wedding this weekend. Um, so, yeah, good. Glad we could do this. Uh, I apologize for the folks. It's obviously coming out a little later in the week than you're used to, but um, should be well worth the wait. TC, uh, I, I think just to let people know, we're going to be a little short and sweet uh, this week. You're up against a dinner resi tonight, so we want to get you out the door here. Uh, we got to download. We got a lot of topics to download on. I feel like over the next week or two, uh, we can get to them. I know you're very excited about the cicadas, the 17, the 17 yeah. year cicadas. Cicada brood X, I think, or cicada yeah. brood 10, uh, which coincidentally, 17 years ago, I was at summer orientation at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And that was the last time these cicadas were, were uh, doing their thing. Unbelievable. So, if you could think back, remember, it's like, God, 17 years from now, I'm going to be, you know, like I'm 30. So like, oh, my God, I'm going to be so old. Uh, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. Um, I've got a mea culpa from last week. Yeah, please. Spieth won the U.S. Junior at Gold Mountain, um, not uh, the U.S. Publix. So I, I sincerely regret the error on that. Um and then just a few things we're tracking. Of course, well. of course. Um, Vladimir Putin seems to be taking over the Arctic. Bad news there, potentially, for the rest of the world. Our colleague Cody's been keeping us abreast of that. Uh, many of you may know Cody from our Saudi Arabia episode. Um, just, yes, yeah, so a, a lot of things going on in the Arctic right now. Um, so. I, I know you. another thing we're keeping track of is that Ryanair uh, state-sponsored hijacking. I honestly, I haven't read. I've just kind of perused some headlines. I got to dig in there uh, before we reconvene. The uh, Belarusian uh, prime minister or president uh, kind of playing dumb with everyone, and, and you know, I guess he there was a dissident on the flight that he wanted to mm. to to uh, nab. So, uh, and then you know, uh, or out in rural Oregon, eastern Oregon, uh, uh, Malheur County, which is where Sylvie's is, one of one of the counties, uh, five counties out there are, they approved measures last week to uh, secede to over to Idaho. They're, this, they're trying. So, so this is separate from the Jefferson push. Correct. Jefferson's okay. one of the counties. Okay. Jefferson County, Oregon, but they, they would like to join Idaho. They no longer want to be a part of Oregon. Because so. of the, the liberal voters out west? <laughs> I think so. Um, Among other things. I mean, honestly... <laughs> Just probably fits I, right? exactly from just driving around out there a little bit. It, it feels much more like what Idaho would be than than certainly what Portland and although the I'm, West Coast. I'm getting reports all over the place that that people from California are moving are flocking to Idaho right now. Boise is Boise's the hot. center of the universe right now. But put it on the list: Austin, Denver, Boise, Nashville, Nashville. Uh, Kalispell, Montana, I think is, is going nuts too. So they're they're going everywhere. Um, what else? Uh, we were in Philadelphia last weekend. We were at Tom Coyne's event. Uh, wonderful book launch party. Played some really good golf. At some point, we got to talk about your. You got to go up to Pine Valley and see it for the first time, which was awesome. Splash World. <laughs> Splash World, as the kids call it. Uh, I got to play Philly Cricket Club, so the boys the boys got to see some some pretty cool courses there in the Philly area. You, play, you played uh, what three Flynn courses? Two Flynn courses? Yeah, Rolling Green and and uh, yeah and cricket. Played Huntington Valley, and then yeah, I was trying to explain Pine Valley to my wife this morning. I started crying. <laughs> I, I, no, That's my favorite thing that I've heard in a long time. Like, no joke, it was 
It was the most meaningful two days of my life, non-wedding or childbirth division. Well, some of the things you were telling me, I'm going to be curious, like in a month, if, if they hold up, uh, you know, supplanting perhaps St. Andrews as your favorite yeah. place on earth. Uh, I think at one point you said it made Cyprus look like a muni, just, just big, bold I takes I love Cyprus. It puts <laughs> Cyprus in a body bag. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So right. we can, we, we, we can, can we, yeah, we'll we get into that another that. time. Uh, your boys at Apollo Asset Management. I know. Oh. Speaking of Philadelphia, yeah, big power struggle there. Been keeping tabs on that. Um, NBA playoffs. Your Jazz got a big win last night, even the series against the Grizz. Ja Morant is exceptional. He's uh, as entertaining as it gets. I think it's going to take a couple games, a couple more games for Donovan to get get in the mix. Um, you know, they made some threes. They they shot the ball. Yeah, they're you know when they're making when they're making shots, they're obviously one of the best teams. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And then uh, last thing I had, there was a, there's a big um, bidding war slash it could be an antitrust battle going on with uh, the uh, Kansas City Southern Railroad. We oh, talk we talk a lot about about choke points and of everything course. like that. This of would course. be the only railroad, uh, the Canadian Pacific Railroad, and the Canadian National Railway are are in a bidding war over this uh, this railroad. This would be the only railroad to go from Canada to Mexico. Huh. You know, with one company owning it all the way through. I like that. So oh, No, I don't like that, but I like <laughs> the the just potential for chaos. Exactly. Uh, so. um, all right, well, cool. We, uh, the, the PGA's in Fort Worth. We are not going to Fort Worth, though. We're going back to Vegas, the LPGA match play. Awesome event. I'm so glad they, they put a match play on the calendar. And Shadow Creek, um, you know, artificial, but really, really nice. Like it's the Foz's yeah. masterwork, right? <laughs> Looks totally out of place in the desert, but uh, fun event. Good, good for TV this weekend. Um, and we, we figured it, w- it wouldn't be appropriate for us to do Fort Worth um, as our friend the Commish is still... Still, still not speaking to still us. Still radio silent. Uh, Kamish, if you're listening to this, <laughs> if anybody knows the Kamish, can get word to him, tell him we're thinking of him. Um, so, yeah, so we have uh, a Las Vegas resident. TC, I think we just cut right to the chase. Please. We efforted, we efforted Benito Martinez. Yeah, he was our first choice. Our first choice. Of course, the actor from The Shield, uh, among other FX series. We thought we got him. We were very excited. We've never gotten our first choice before. And um, yeah, I guess we followed the wrong guy on, on Instagram or we reached out to the wrong guy, but we got a pretty awesome consolation prize in, in Benito Martinez. Uh, food, beverage, extraordinaire. Renaissance uh, man. Renaissance man. Knows a ton about Las Vegas restaurant scene. Uh, of course, I'm teasing. We we that's who we were uh, reaching out to. But um, that's our guest this week. Thrilled to talk to him. It was a great conversation. I think everybody will, will enjoy it. Yeah. So without further ado, let's uh, let's kick it to Benito. He'll get into a lot of his backstory and experience. So um, I, I hope everybody enjoys. Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get into our interview this week, I want to thank our other sponsor for today's podcast, and that is, of course, our good friends at DraftKings Sportsbook. DraftKings has brought their expertise to legal sports betting. It's a legitimate sportsbook based right here in the U.S., so you can rest assured that your funds are totally secure. It's America's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw money at your convenience. 
Head to the app right now. Check out all they have to offer, including player props, live betting, and so much more around all of your favorite sports. Of course, uh, they have lots of golf this week with uh, the Charles Schwab Challenge going on. The women, the LPGA Tour, are out in Las Vegas for their match play event. There's a Corn Ferry Tour. There's a Euro Tour. And if golf's not your thing, check out the NBA playoffs, regular season baseball, on and on. Uh, if if it is a sport, DraftKings will have a market for it. And if the sports book is not yet available in your state, don't forget about the DraftKings Fantasy app. They always have a lot of great games uh, going on over there. So listeners right now, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use the code TRAPDRAW, all one word, TRAPDRAW, when you sign up and get access to all of the different offers DraftKings is currently running. Remember, enter code TRAPDRAW when you sign up to get in on all of the action. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Thank them very much for sponsoring the Trap Draw and now on to this week's interview. On the line with us right now, live from Las Vegas, Mr. Benito Martinez. Benito, good afternoon. How are you today? Good afternoon. Uh, Very happy to be here. Now, first question, I think a lot of people, I'm sure you get this a lot. Have you ever done any acting, perhaps on a television show called The Shield? Um, it, no. However, I do have some funny stories about that. Uh, so it's a very unique name, Benito Martinez. You, you know, maybe out on the West Coast, maybe a little bit more popular. But, you know, up until my early 20s, I had never met even another Benito that was outside my family. And um, then, you know, you run into a couple of people and, you have, uh, you, you know, Google, Google becomes popular, you Google your own name, you find out that there's a, uh, <clears throat> the first uh, Mexican-American to win the Congressional Medal of Honor is named Benito Martinez, and there's a uh, school in San Antonio named after him. So that was uh, kind of thrilling when I found that out. Uh, and then you go through and you see Benito Martinez on, um, uh, on the shield on, uh, I think it was on 24 and, you know, uh, you know, character actor, you know, cool projects. When, um, what was the mo- Sons of Anarchy? When Sons of Anarchy ended, like the rap party, this was just a few years ago, so Instagram was still was big. Uh, one of the other actors kind of took a picture at the rap party and tagged four or five uh, different actors. They tagged me. So I pick up my phone and it's like, you know, I get 100 new followers in five minutes. And I'm, I'm like, what is this going on? Like, what, you know, what happened here? And I scroll through and it's just funny to this day, there'll be people who will like, I'll post something and it'll be someone I've never met who will comment as if I'm him. Like, oh, I didn't know you. I didn't know you were in Vegas or I didn't know you were in Colorado whenever, or something like that. And it's like, they're not speaking to me. They're thinking of the actor. And, and then secondly, the rapper Bad Bunny is named Benito Martinez as well. So it happens now there's a whole secondary. So like I have all of these followers who are like, man, that doesn't look like the guy on uh, the Latin Grammys, you know, it's like, that's uh, a different, you know, different look. So it's kind of, it's very funny. I, I, I share the story quite a they bit. They stick with, around. Uh, they must like the food and beverage scene too. Yeah, for sure. That's fantastic. Um, well, let's start here. How, how long, tell me about your uh, Las Vegas experience. How long have you lived in Las Vegas, Benito? Uh, most of my life. I was born in San Francisco, fifth generation San Franciscan. 
uh, born in uh, 73. My family moved here in the late 70s and went to, you know, stayed here throughout back and forth after high school to back to San Francisco for college and back. So I've really only lived in two places, Vegas and San Francisco, but, but the majority, I lived as an adult in San Francisco for a few years as well, but uh, Vegas is home, uh, deep roots here. And uh, so I've been here a long, long time. And I'm curious, you know, Tron and I were out in San Francisco the other week and we both said to each other, like, I'm not sure it gets better than San Francisco just as a city. Um, maybe not to live necessarily, but I'm curious how, how you compare and contrast the two and, and what ultimately, what was it about Vegas that, that ultimately made you call it home? So I moved uh, from Las Vegas to San Francisco uh, like when I was uh, 21. And I, at the time, I thought San Francisco was the uh, best, um, the, the best city in America. You know, it was just a magical place. Uh, I loved it. Um, I became, married young, family young, and, and my wife was from Vegas as well. So, you know, it's all fun and games when you're in a studio or apartment in San Francisco. And then all of a sudden, reality kicks in. And it's like, you know, we need a little support. We need a little more family support. So we kind of uprooted and, and came back to Vegas. And, and the plan for both of us was always to sort of try to move back to San Francisco. To, like we, you know, we, we, we all have, we, I have a lot of family still in the Bay Area. Her family is uh, spread between Vegas and you know, Phoenix. So, you know, we always thought that we would maybe one day, you know, move back. And uh, that opportunity actually came, uh, presented itself in 2014. I, I rejoined my old company, uh, Mina Group. Uh, Michael Mina, Chef Michael Mina, Mina Group is based in San Francisco, and I, I had worked for them uh, in a pre, you know, previously, and I took a corporate position with them with the intention of moving to San Francisco. Um, I, I rejoined in, in May, uh, March of 2014, and I was given about a year to move to transition. So my job was uh, director of beverage, and so I was on the corporate team. It was really more development and uh, new restaurants. So I could be, you know, a lot of travel for work. But with being the corporate offices based in San Francisco, obviously, everyone had to be based in San Francisco. So at about the six-month, eight-month mark, uh, really started to dig in to try to like, move the family up there and things like that. The, and of course, we knew it was going to be expensive. Of course, we knew it was going to be like different, different lifestyle. But you know, generally, when you move to San Francisco, you kind of get a, a pay bump. You know, And I'm talking about my wife's salary at the time. Her, she's in a, she's a director of a salon and spa for one of the hotels here in Vegas. And so when she's looking for jobs in that area, Napa, kind of, you know, San Francisco, the, the, the spas there are, you know, a quarter of the size of the Las Vegas spa. So therefore, the, the um, most of the salaries are kind of, you know, reflective of that there. So we were looking at, you know, thinking of a, you know, 30% increase in, um, in cost of living and with a, maybe a 20% increase in salary, and it turned out it was going to be a, more of like a 20% pay cut and a 30% cost of living rise. So that's when we sort of pulled the plug on any aspirations of moving back to San Francisco, unless you know I find a lottery ticket around. So I, I broke the news to my company and said, you know, I just can't see it happening. And if you know, I, I promised I, I would. So if that means an exit strategy, I, let's work it out. Something that works for both of us. And they said, you travel so much, you're fine. You can stay in Vegas. And uh, consequently, um, over the last few years, the entire corporate team has moved to Las Vegas. So now the, now the Michael Mina Group's corporate team is based out of here. So I was a little bit of an outlier. And now I'm, you know, that's kind of more of a pioneer. I think, I think looking back too, that was probably the worst 
time to move to San Francisco, right? 2014. Yeah. <laughs> it's the and peak you know, of the peak. And you're not even just looking at the cost of living increase, but you're looking at a, you know, a 60 minute commute one way, to be yeah. honest, you know, if, you know, with a family and things. So it, it just, but, you know, so there wasn't going to be, we knew there wasn't going to be maybe a spot in San Francisco that could command her salary from a spot perspective. But, you know, when you branch out into Sonoma and Napa, there might be some other options. So living halfway between San Francisco and you maybe wine country would have been worked for both of us. And it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't doable, you know? So um, yeah, it was awful. It was like a lot of stressful time. And, you know, you promised your employer who you've worked for first long time that you're going to work and you have to kind of break the news, but it turned out to be, it turned out to work out, but yeah, it, uh, no more aspirations moving there. The city has changed quite a bit and uh, it is a beautiful place to visit, uh, but it is sort of a, a tale of two cities, really. I don't know if there's another city in America where you see the dichotomy of have and have nots. Like the people who go and visit San Francisco and they're not taking public transportation, you know, they're in their own cars or Ubers and they're kind of skipping over swaths of the city that people who actually work there have to encounter. And it's just, it's not, you know, it, it needs a lot of work there. So it's it's a difficult, it's difficult because, you know, like I said, I was, fifth, I was, you know, my, uh, you know, I don't know my great great grandmother's birthday, but my great grandmother was born um, August twenty first, nineteen fifteen, in San Francisco, and then my grandmother was born the day the Golden Gate Bridge got dedicated, which is May twenty seventh, nineteen thirty seven. So like it was funny throughout her life, the ten year, the twenty year, well more of an adult life, but you know the twenty fifth anniversary of the dedication of the Golden Gate Bridge was my grandmother's birthday. So the whole city's partying and these huge events throughout the city. And she always said it was for her. So it's kind of, kind of funny. The 50th what anniversary part of, the city? of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, like what part of the city? Was the family always in the same part of the city? Yeah. So my mom's side of the family was more of the outer mission, Excelsior, uh, area close to Daly City, sort of still in San Francisco city limits, but uh, it was called the outer mission, Amazon Crocker, Excelsior area. That's kind of a you know, Venn diagram that sort of covers that. My dad's family was more in the heart of the mission, you know, like uh, used to be an Irish, you know, Irish neighborhood and then it turned into more of a uh, Latino neighborhood and a little bit of the Latino neighborhood is more now more of like a hipster working class neighborhood, but lots of great restaurants, lots of cool stuff going on in the mission. My dad went to Mission High. Well, and we want to talk to you about uh, restaurants is, is a good entryway. Um, I guess a couple of questions. Are you still you know, you got the, the MENA group to come to you. Are you still with them? And um, talk a little bit about, you know, the restaurants that, that you guys have in, in your per portfolio. And if you don't mind uh, a little bit of, of your background in, in the food and beverage industry. Sure. So I'm not currently with MENA group and I don't, um, you know, that was a COVID decision in March. And I, I definitely uh, had some opportunities as things turn around, but, you know, I was on the road for almost six months, you know, sometimes six months out of the year, you know, in my contract, it's 50%, uh, 50% of the time. And so, you know, so much, it, it, it's, when you look at the calendar, there were so many kind of, uh, they have like 10 projects and uh, on the calendar and maybe four of those come to fruition, but they go, they all come to fruition in the same year. And so I remember, you know, going to open a restaurant in Springfield, um, Massachusetts, uh, being there for six weeks or for four to five weeks, coming home for a day and then going to Nashville for two months, you know, and that cycle kind of played itself out over a few years. And there were certainly plenty of times where I was home and able to work from home. Um, and I sort of justified it in a way of thinking that, you know, when I was um, just full time in Las Vegas working, uh, you know, it's a restaurant hour. So, you know, I'm 
going to work at noon and coming home at midnight. You know, so I'm missing a lot of the stuff during the week. And so I missed a lot just from that schedule being home. And so some of the travel, I, I justified it as like, well, when I'm home, I could be home for four or five weeks and I'm dinner with the family. And, you know, so it was a nice balance, but I, it just became a little bit unbalanced at the end where uh, that travel, you know, a lot of personal sacrifice for the job, you know, just because of the, the travel demands and it's a little bit more of a young man's game. Uh, so uh, I'm not with them and I, I'm kind of just kind of doing my, you know, like that was a decision, my decision in the sense that once I had the forced pause for three or four months and you kind of get a feel for what you're missing, you know, out of your personal life, it just, it's hard to ramp up and go, okay, let's go back on the road for another six months here. And coming out of uh, COVID, there were so many projects that got put on pause, uh, you know, that, that are, that are now going to be, so I would imagine that, you know, I'm still very close with them and uh, very close with a lot of my ex-colleagues. I would imagine that they're going to be embarking on the busiest time ever over the course of the next two years, to be honest, from, a, you know, fixing the restaurants that maybe were struggling during COVID, along with taking opportunities that might come outside of development, you know, and it's just not something I can see myself doing full time. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to pivot and, you know, perhaps work with them in some other ways, but, but certainly not, not, not the position I was in. It's just a, a bit too, you know, too old for that now. I, uh, I feel like there's a cultural shift like about to happen with restaurants and hospitality in general where, you know, I don't know if it's it, it, like the labor force seems to be changing and, and there seems to be kind of like when people paused and said, hey, like, why am, why am I doing this? Or why am I like, and, and you know, I feel like people are going to have to, guests at restaurants and hotels are going to have to be nicer to staff. And there's <laughs> there's just a sense of, like, yo, like, why am I, why am I doing this? I'm not making that much money. People are treating me like shit. I love what I do, but it's not, you know, like this doesn't feel sustainable. The hours are tough and all that. And it feels like finally the pendulum's shifting back to the worker a little bit, you know, and, and the staffs. I a hundred percent agree with that. You know, I, there's so many different political pressures and different, you know, running a restaurant and, it, and there's so many different um, layers of it or so many different um, tiers and whether you're a mom and pop, putting all of your heart and soul into one location, or you're a, a chef that's, you know, has some regional, um, regional fame that is able to, you know, raise some, you know, investors, it, but it's a, it's a, regardless of what it is, unless you're at the top end of a sort of corporate, um, it's a tight, it's a, it's a high wire and you never know what's going to happen. And, and so um, I think that it is just uh, with, you know, there's this political pressure to, um, $15 minimum wage across the country, right? And the, it, and it's like, if you're not taking into account the front of house tips and you have to pay a server $15 an hour and they're making, you know, anywhere from, you know, depending on the type of restaurant, but let's just say 80 to $500 a night in tips, if you're not accounting for that in their wages, you have, you, you know, you have front of house employees who are, you know, oftentimes overpaid compared to their back of the house counterparts. Dishwashers and cooks are criminally underpaid, but you, but when you have these, you can't, there's just not enough pie to go around, you know, the, the demands of a restaurant uh, as far as financially. And so, and now you tap, you add on to the front of the house wages going up in to $15 an hour in a lot of municipalities. It's, it's tough. It, I don't, you know, it's very, it's going to take a lot of um, on the restaurant side or, or on the operator side, it's going to take a lot of creative thinking and sort of thinking outside the box and sort of combining front of the house, back of the house positions so that more, more back of the house positions can maybe be involved in the tip pool. There's, you know, laws that uh, have come off the books that, you know, you couldn't tip kitchen employees. And, and now that's 
a little bit changed. And so I think it's just a little bit of a paradigm shift for both front of the house employees understanding like, you know, maybe, you know, getting a job as a bartender or a, a server in a great, you know, soulful, uh, you know, chef run restaurant, it's going to be, you know, which maybe five years ago or whatever could be easily a six figure uh, a job with gratuities. You know, maybe that is gone away a bit because some of that share is going to have to be, you know, shared with the back of the house. And that is not an easy thing to tell people. Uh, and then there's obviously there's also tons of restaurants where the gratuities aren't, aren't as good, you know, aren't as, you know, they're more, uh, more, the highs and lows are much bigger. And so it's just going to take a lot of creative thinking on both parts. I think you're absolutely right. I definitely think people need to be a little bit easier on restaurants, uh, a little bit more understanding of how hard it is you know, with the, you know, people are running short staffed. So someone complains about, you know, their item taking um, 10 minutes longer than it should. It really should be thankful that it's only, wow, I can't believe you got this up in 30 minutes because it's, it's really that hard right now. And so um, if you try to sort of do what you've always done and just ignore all of these outside pressures, you're just not going to make it. Or you're going to just run your employees into the ground and it's going to show in your service and the product. Yeah, I mean, there's there's dozens of restaurants in St. Augustine and Northeast Florida right now that I'm sure it's the same everywhere that are either running limited hours or, you know, they just don't have line cooks. They don't have dishwashers. Yeah. They don't have bartenders, all that, you know. Yeah, so I mean, every city is different, but I'll just talk about San Francisco briefly. If you're a cook making $17 an hour, you know, in San Francisco, let's say, or maybe even $18 an hour, you can't live in San Francisco on that, right? So you're literally commuting 90 minutes sometimes one way, 65, 70, 80, 90 minutes one way, uh, either by train or by car and train, you know, like driving to, you know, some people I know live an hour from the BART station and then an hour on BART to get to the city. And that's a five day a week commute, you know, for $17 an hour. So when it, so the restaurants in San Francisco where rent is high and you can't really afford to pay them more, but if a local restaurant chain restaurant or just sort of maybe generic restaurant that's 20, that's, you know, five minutes from my house or 30 minutes from my house is going to pay me the same. Why would I want to make that commute all the way to San Francisco, right? Obviously, if you're an aspiring chef who's starting as a line cook and aspires to work for a famed chef and, you know, then, then it's worth that sacrifice. But if you're just, you know, you're just a, a if not just, but if you're a, someone who I cook, I'm a cook, but I don't really have, I, I want to spend time with my family. I want to do other things. I don't have aspirations to be a sous chef or to be a chef. Why it's hard to justify making that 90 minute commute for the, maybe I can make maybe $2 less an hour and stay close to home. And so the uh, labor issue uh, in, in, you know, all over is it's different depending where you are, but it, it's pretty universal that it's tough. Vegas is a little unique in that most of the restaurants, we're talking about strip restaurants now, um, they have a leg up because generally speaking, most of the restaurants aren't paying rent, their management contracts. And, and it's a, and it's a business. It's a, it's so the, the salaries, back of the house salaries or the uh, cook cooks wages are much more competitive. The cost of living is a lot less here in Vegas. So it's not quite as bad here in Vegas on the strip because they can pay more. They can pay a cook, you know, it's union wages. You can pay an entry level cook $19 an hour. You can pay a chef de partie $24 an hour. And they can compete because they're not there, but they don't have the, the, the their cost of occupancy is diminished. Uh, once you get off the strip and you're paying rent and wages, that's when you see the difference. That's when you see the difficulty in finding back of the house help. It's uh, on back of the house labor. It's, it's just, it's impossible for sometimes. 
Can I ask you, uh, just sticking with this subject a little longer, I recently moved to Denver and for the first time out here, I've noticed um, some restaurants I've been to, they, they add a, a 20% service charge onto the bill. Um, and then it's like, you know, you're, you're free to tip above and beyond that, but essentially setting that minimum, I was just curious if that's pretty prevalent, um, you know, in Vegas or, or across the country, do you know? And, and do you think that's a trend that's sustainable or, or do you think we'll see more of that? Yeah, I think that's what I was a little bit referring to some, you know, a portion of that is what I was referring to as sort of creative thinking. I think that, you know, restaurateurs have decided, you know, like they're going to add this gratuity when it, when you add it from the, you can do what you want with it. So you can, you know, it's when it's a forced service charge, you can kind of distribute it the way you see fit. And then above and beyond that, obviously uh, direct tip earners, you know, take that home. So I think that is what I meant by a paradigm shift in thinking of like, as a consumer, like, okay, this is, this is what it's going to take. If I want, unless I want homogenized corporate restaurants to dominate every neighborhood, I'm going to have to sort of change what I think. And like five years ago, that would have been absurd. That's the cost of doing business. You know, if you don't like it, go, yeah. you know, you can't make it work, then start a, you know, start a laundry mat or something. Right. But like, that isn't the way it is now because of all these other forces. So creative thinking on the operators part of like, you know, opening it, you know, I, I know restaurants where the, some of the cook, the cooks run food, right. So you have, you, you know, you have this rotating kind of, uh, situation where like you'll prepare a dish and some of the cooks will run the food they can speak about the food literally made of just plated the food and so rather than having a, a, a you know uh, food runners that are just there to bring the food from the kitchen to the to the dining room you have you know servers and bartenders but then the food runners are more part of the back of the house team and they're therefore they can be tipped out and so that's sort of a creative way to to, to sort of boost their wages um yes and in, it's in vegas no i don't see a lot of unless it's you know for banquets or large parties, I don't see a lot of the service charges going to um, going to automatic uh, what you just discussed. But in San Francisco, it's very prevalent. They add on uh, the city of San Francisco passed a law that if you had over a certain amount of employees, you had to offer a health care. And so that was a huge cost to a small businesses. So they passed that on by adding it, you know, a 5% charge. And that was sort of the first time I saw it in San Francisco. It was like just a 5% charge that help them um, meet their healthcare obligations. But that was, you know, they, it was either that or just raise all the prices. And then, you know, so it just sort of depends, you know, it, it, like I said, creative thinking and sort of acceptance of these new paradigms is kind of from everybody's part, I think is uh, what is going to lead to the most success uh, for restaurateurs. So I, I come at this from a total neophyte. I've never been to Vegas somehow. Oh. Which is insane. I know. <laughs> I worked in yeah, yeah. Both of us. Rest. Both of us. You never been to Vegas either. No. Never been to Vegas. Oh, no. wow. and so yeah. So I, I have my concept of you know what it's like on the strip and what I've seen in movies and on TV and you know uh, nights games and all that stuff. But what's the like? What's the dichotomy like between being a Vegas local and kind of that that you know weekend in Vegas? kind of mentality and, and, and how much do you blend those two things or how much are those two just distinct different worlds? So if you move here in your early twenties, it's the exact same, you know, I know people who get here and they get a job in some restaurants and, you know, college age, and they're literally like, it's, there's no happy, there's no last call here. So they, they get chewed up and spit out pretty quick. They need to, you know, and, and, and some, you know, they can go years and years, you know, just depending on, uh, I grew up here. So it, you know, I, I didn't, I really ever have to fall into that, but, uh, you know, so to the new, you know, you know, the young, you know, college aged, you know, it's not easy money, but, you know, there's 
it's it's uh, there's lots of you know hospitality jobs you know previous to COVID. So the difference between someone coming to Rage for the weekend and uh, you know someone who lives here and really it really isn't they're at the same place at the same time they might you know they're the same person right. Um, but obviously as you get older or as things change, you know there's there's definitely a dichotomy. Uh, it's Vegas is very suburban. There's about two million people who live in the Las Vegas Valley. It's you know it's a I think it's boomed, you know, since the late 70s, early 80s, the fastest growing city in America for like 20 straight years. Uh, so tons, you know, like, so the image of Vegas is very apt, you know, true. You can come to Vegas, you know, gambling obviously is what everything was founded on as far as for, as a tourist destination. But over time, that has, uh, you know, shrunk and shrunk. It's like the, the, the uh, what you spend your time doing as a, as a as a Vegas guest, as a Vegas tourist, I think the gambling time has probably been minimized uh, as other things have come forward. You know, obviously world-class dining options everywhere you look, uh, you know, shows and, uh, you know, entertainment uh, that are sort of featured in each hotel as long as a revolving, you know, Bruno Mars coming, doing a residency. And, you know, so there's lots of concerts, lots of things to do coming to town. Um, Celine Dion. So, yeah, Randy's so, a big Celine Dion fan. Massive. When I was kind of preparing for this, I thought about maybe like of an itinerary and it was just sort of impossible because it's just so it depends on, you know, if you want to gamble, then who cares what everything else is doing, right? <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to eat and drink, then, you know, it, it, you know, it would be different. You know, there's shopping, you know. So what I what I kind of thought about when prepared for this was um, a group of friends, maybe a couple uh, who come to Vegas and maybe like you guys just or maybe just like someone who just maybe anti-Vegas, not like, oh, it's not for me. I don't like to gamble. I don't like that kind of stuff. I'm more outdoorsy. Uh, I don't I don't see the appeal. So I try to think of some things like from, you know, if you're definitely into food and beverage or other things that maybe to think about where you could like kind of split that. I, I think you could create an itinerary for anyone who would have a really great time in Vegas, uh, you know, some options. And so um, it, it, there, Vegas is what you want out of it. You know, if you want to come and, you know, obviously you've watched a ton of sports, you know, there's like in, in, in game betting and all of the uh, great, you know, like, so if you want to come with a guys weekend and, and like watch, you know, like it's very common, you know, March madness, you know, guys trip college buddies, 20 year reunions, these big group of guys are coming, they're golfing during the day and they watch that first weekend of March madness. And that's a, a great, great trip. Right. Um, but it, not for everybody. So it sort of depends on what you're looking for, but you can definitely come here and, rage as hard as you know if you're the shot 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 group you're in the right place but you can also you know have a luxury uh dinner and uh, you know a, a great hotel and kind of relax sit by the pool go to the cabana work on your tan and never even sit never even gamble at all so it's quite a, sort of just uh, sort of just depends circling back on your question first i opened the bellagio in 1998 as a food server for michael mina so i was the youngest i was like 22 23 uh Bellagio opened in 98 and it was like the center of the food and beverage universe for a couple of years. It, it just sort of uh, totally changed uh, what people thought of Vegas from a destination for, for food and beverage and kind of set the tone for other hotels to follow suit, which, which, which in turn changed the entire uh, view of Las Vegas from a food and beverage standpoint. Um, and so I started my career, um, I had waited tables for a couple of years before that, but the level of sort of study and the level of service that I needed to excel in the, at the Bellagio and for Michael Mina was vastly different than I had, you know, had experienced before. And so I came to it as a, you know, this was a, you know, working in a restaurant was a good job until I found something else 
And then when I kind of met a, you know, a passionate chef with the vision and uh, this company that, you know, where hospitality was taken so seriously, it really turned into more of a passion and a career. Um, it, that's how I started in food and beverage. What was your career arc from, from server to, you know, corporate wine director or, or, yeah. or corporate yeah. beverage director? director? So I uh, started, you know, like I said, I waited tables a little bit college and then, you know, waited tables in around Vegas, Bellagio opened. Uh, which is a whole other story about how I got that job, but I, I got in there by hook or crook. And uh, um, yeah, so that was like, it was really an education. It was really like, whoa, like it just opened a world of like, you know, like, again, it was just my view of, you know, what I looked at. It was like a great job, a great, you know, a full-time income for sort of part-time sort of work almost, you know, like compared to what I was making back then, compared to what the hours I was putting in was like, you know, it, it was great, but it really exposed me to, like the passion of the industry. So I started as a server uh, in 98. Uh, they opened, a, this was called a restaurant called Oxo Aqua, opened I think in 1991, I believe, in San Francisco. That's where Chef Mina got his start. Um, based on the strength of that restaurant, he was invited to uh, be a part of the Bellagio opening. That's where I, where I joined him. Uh, and, and then in 2001, they opened a third Aqua in Orange County. Uh, it was at a uh, uh, a St. Regis resort uh, in Dana, near Dana Point. Yeah. And I was asked to go help train, uh, uh, just train the servers, train the front of the house staff. Uh, and I did, I was there for about three or four weeks and the chef there and the general manager asked me to stay on uh, full time, be a the assistant general manager. Uh, and so I, you know, again, I thought about making that move to Southern California with the family and I said, yes, right. So I started, the hotel opened in like, July-ish. I, I was, so I was there from like mid-June through the end of July. And that's when they offered me this position. And I stayed on a little longer and I took it, but it took about, I don't know, four or five weeks to get everything going. So I had to transition from employee, uh, you know, like sort of consultant, you know, just working at, to being a, um, an employee of the ho actual hotel. So they had to go through the background check and all that. So my hire date was 9-11. My official hire date was 9-11-2001. So the day that I sign my paperwork that was going to make, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a full-time employee of this hotel. Let's move the family down here. My, my position was almost eliminated. So I was like kind of in this like limbo for a few months and I was able to, that project uh, never after was kind of almost doomed from the start there. Uh, they've gone through some transitions and they're doing well now, but I ended up coming back in December, sorry, in 2002, January, 2002, I was able to get my position back at Bellagio and kind of stuck around there for a little while, but I had the taste of management and I liked the responsibility. I liked the, you know, being a, you know, being able to lead and kind of like affect a lot of change more than you could as a server. But I also realized I did not want to, I didn't want to have to negotiate the overnight cleaners and I didn't want to have to like, you know, make the, make the uh, server system schedule and deal. I like, wanted so to focus like, on the craft, it, not the, right. not and the I didn't politics. Want, so I didn't, yeah. yeah, I didn't really want to be a general manager at that point, but I definitely wanted more um, responsibility. So that's when uh, uh, Raj Parr, uh, Rajat Parr, who's uh, yeah. my mentor and friend, he, he was the director. He became the director of wine for the Mina Group. And so I sort of, he was, uh, I kind of apprenticed and I used a big mentor. And so that's when I really kind of got into more of a beverage focus. Uh, I worked at Bellagio and our, we had a transition and Jason Smith, who's a master sommelier, joined our team, and I became his assistant. And so I was an apprentice sommelier for him for a few years. And between those two, I you know, learned a lot. And Jason moved on. 
and I was in contention to be the next sommelier for the restaurant I was at, which was Aqua Michael Mina at Bellagio. And at the time, there were four, believe it or not, four master sommeliers in the building, right? Like not just, so like at the time, there was a time when there was 18 master sommeliers in Las Vegas, right? So when you're looking for and, tasting- And how, how many like in, in the world at this point? Like that's an absurd I would, number, I right? Less than, at the time, yeah, at the time it was less than 200, probably about 120 <laughs> in the United States, you know? Uh, and believe it or not, per capita, it wasn't even the biggest because I think there was five or six in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And being Boulder, being such a small town, like per capita, it wasn't even number one. But to imagine four master ways in your building, just the educational, you know, just it's like osmosis. Like you, if you're just going out for a drink after work, you're going to learn something about, you know, what you're drinking. So um, that just kind of ignited a passion for wine, which was first. Um, like I said, so I was in contention for this, you know, sort of promotion. And another master sommelier in the building had threw his hat in the ring for the, uh, for the job. And, you know, the writing was on the wall. I mean, I'm, no matter how, whatever it is, if, you know, me and a master sommelier going for the same job, I mean, yeah. it's just no brainer, right? At the time. So uh, I, you know, no hard feelings, but I, I just felt like I needed to maybe get aside and move on and, you know, move on from that position because it just wasn't going to be a lot of growth there for me. So I took a position with uh, Encore. So Wind Resort opened a secondary tower, uh, I think in 2004, but I joined in 2008 when the secondary tower opened. So I, yeah, so Encore opened in December of 2008. And I, so I, so basically I was with, in different capacities, I was with Mina Group from 98 to 08. And then I left to go to uh, Wynn Resort and I was there from 08 to 2013. And then I, and then back to Mina Group when a uh, position kind of, uh, so I started my position back in corporate as the assistant a beverage director uh, of Mina Group. And that's kind of like the arc. Gotcha. What's the, uh, I guess we'll, we'll have you power rank if you can. I don't want to put you in an awkward spot. I don't know if your wife still, still works for one of the spas or yeah. I'm sure you got friends still at Bellagio and Wynn and all that, but can you, can you power rank the, the Las Vegas resorts? Sure. Absolutely. I, I'm a free, free agent. Um, <laughs> I would say, there's lots of there's lots of different things you know like when you're talking about budget and value and all the different factors that go into it i think uh food and beverage location it's it's it can be hard but i would say um aria would be number one for me um you know it, it's centrally located it has tons of food and beverage uh, options uh they do a great job it's the, the it's the newest hotel so the rooms are spacious and well-pointed and uh, luxurious actually uh so i would say that would probably be number one i would always look there first and see if I can get it. You know, I'm going to compare rates though. You know, being from Vegas, I just, you know, like if I was going to recommend somebody, I'd probably give somebody three, three recommendations and let them, let their budget sort of decide. So I would say, you know, cosmopolitan as well. It's, you know, a little bit younger point of view, a little bit, you know, hipper, if you will, again, centrally located, great rooms, lots of uh, food and beverage offerings right there in the hotel, uh, lots of action, you know, both for us, you know, both have nightlife, you know, night, like, hardcore nightclubs that you can go to at night after dinner, things like that. Um, events, you know, Aria hosts, you know, most of the sort of sporting events are, you know, within walking distance, you know, depending uh, if you're going to a fight or something. Uh, it's, so it just sort of depends. Wind Resort as, as well. I, I would put wind up there as far as rooms and, and, and service, maybe 
their point of view on food and beverage is a little safe for me. It's a little kind of, you know, not quite as uh, it's a tier down, not, not that they don't have great restaurants, but they're just a little, they're just a little bit, you know, conservative, I think for me. Um, and, uh, and their location is still central. We're all talking close, but you know, you're definitely not in the Palazzo or Venetian you can walk to, but you're not really walking to anything else from there. Uh, it's sort of at the, uh, it's sort of the North end of the strip. Uh, and, the others are kind of at the south end. So the south end is kind of a little bit more populous, a little more action. Uh, but it's but from rooms and service and and uh, taking care of people, when it would be at the would be at the top. But I, I would just put them a peg down because of their their food and beverage offerings. What what is the uh, like the food distribution uh, look like there? Like, are they just flying in massive cargo planes with a with, yeah, with great no. fish and? Kobe yeah. beef and all sorts yeah. of just outrageous ingredients on a daily basis. So Absolutely. Kind of yeah. And, this machine. And that kind of started in 98, you know, that was a big concern for the chefs that uh, Steve Wynn originally attracted, you know, they, they needed uh, obviously um, produce and um, you know, ingredient, you know, these are chef minded ingredient driven chefs. Uh, and that was the concern pre 98. And, you know, I think with Bellagio opening all these restaurants at once, it, it made, you had this built in, you know, so the uh, district, the, you know, it wasn't just one restaurant that you were flying stuff in for all of a sudden now you're flying in for five new restaurants. Right. And then, yeah. and then right after that, the Mandalay Bay opened, you know, so, so Bellagio opened in September 5th, October 15th, 1998 was the first day Bellagio opened. And then the Venetian opened, you know, the Mandalay Bay opened like six months later and then the Venetian opened six months later. So you had, so you went from, you know, these six new world-class restaurants and then there was, you know, 15 new world class, and then there's 20 new world class. And then all of the other hotels that had been there had started like, oh, wow, we're behind. So, you know, Caesar's Palace, you know, in changes their entire food and beverage scene and, and brings out outside chefs and so does MGM. So you go from, from 1998 to let's say 2000, and, you know, five years, you're talking about a hundred world-class restaurants that maybe popped up. And that makes, you know, that makes it much easier to justify, you know, the, the distribution coming in, like you said, uh, you know, you're getting, you know, like Scottish salmon from, you know, like flown in, like it was caught yesterday, like the mm-hmm. restaurant Paul Bartolo opened up at when, you know, he had, he was like on the phone with fishermen and it's like on the plate, you know, uh, you know, 24 hours later. And um, that, you know, I don't think all that happens without, you know, the success of Bellagio in, in 98. So you had, you had mentioned earlier um, kind of some different itineraries. I'm curious, you know, Tron and I never been there. Uh, we like to gamble, but I think we also like to eat food, try new places for people that are more restaurant minded. Like what, what are the must visits, must tries uh, in a current trip to Vegas? So uh, I'll tell you, uh, I'll give, I'll give you a couple of different options, but one thing uh, I'm going to, you know, Randy, you're a basketball fan, right? College basketball fan? Huge, yeah. How have you not been to Vegas? You don't know about the Vegas madness? <laughs> I are, know you, are you aware it. of this? Yeah, I, I am a very aware of it. I It's been a mixture of two things. One, Self, either like my self-preservation. Well, man. yeah, three things if you count that. Yeah. Uh, either my schedule just has never worked out, or two, I've never had enough money to actually be able to go out there and enjoy myself. Got it. So I, if you don't know, if, you know the, week, the week before Selection Sunday, there are five conferences that have their conference championships in Vegas. The, the Pac-12, the Mountain West, the WAC, the WCC, and the Big West all have their, their conference finals in Vegas at the same time. So it's, it's, you know, for a sports fan, it's crazy. You can go to, and all the venues are 
you know, they're all within a mile of each other. You can literally go to four basketball games in a day without even breaking a sweat. And the city is full of, you know, hardcore fans and, you know, Pac-12 fans and, you know, it's crazy. So it's a really fun week and that leads into Selection Sunday and then it's great. But uh, so as far as restaurants in Vegas, so I'll go start with strip restaurants. So I think if you're going to come to Vegas, you know, sort of like budget is a thing and preference is a thing, but um, if you're going to come to Vegas, one of the essential things you have to do, and, and it's definitely, you know, budget isn't a consideration but Carbone is kind of number one, you know, like uh, it is a, uh, you know, a great, great restaurant. It, it's a nice combination of, uh, so it's, you know, you could look at the menu and it kind of reads like a red sauce Italian re restaurant. It doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, veal parmesan isn't going to excite a lot of foodies, but the way they do it is so excellent. And the service is so excellent. And the, uh, the experience, you know, you, you've got like this uh, 90s hip hop soundtrack in this like tropical sort of vibe, you know, it's kind of this like, Almost, it looks like it looks like 1950s Havana in there, so it doesn't really look Italian. And you have a hip hop on the radio, and it doesn't really look Italian. You got the guys are in the the service staff is in you know burgundy uh, tuxedos, and then you're eating veal parm, uh, and in the the you know the uh, uh, the pasta dishes they're they're just delicious, and and so it's a it's a whole vibe in there. Like it's like the food is great, but it's you know it's kind of more than the sum of its parts. So it's definitely worth it it's probably on the top of a lot of people's lists. And so you think you want to try to, you know, like be the counterpoint or take the, you know, sort of the, the hipster sort of, uh, and you can't, you can't really beat it for an experience. So I would say cut, I'm uh, sorry. Um, Carbone is great. Uh, right across the way is a Michael restaurant called Bardot, uh, which is a friend, you know, they, they're doing brunch on the weekends and, you know, open every night for dinner uh, and then all day on, on the weekends. And it's uh, you know, French brasserie, great wine list, uh, beautiful restaurant. Uh, it's classic French dishes sort of uh, like tweaked, uh, but not tweaked that much. There's, you know, it's, it's amazing, amazing service. So that's a great, great restaurant. Uh, if you're in town with the guys and you guys want to do a steakhouse, you know, there's so many options at every place. You can't really go wrong, but my, my pit is going to be cut at, uh, uh, cut at from, um, uh, uh, from Wolfgang uh, at uh, the Venetian. You know, I don't think there's a better, food wise service wise i don't think you can be cut uh in las vegas for a steakhouse although there's plenty of great options you know um strip steak at mandalay bay is my Camino restaurant it's a great great restaurant uh every rest you know so you kind of steakhouse sort of appeal to everyone so every casino has you know a great steakhouse uh, so it's hard to power rank those but but number one would definitely be cut i think they're just definitely a little bit above for sure um, cut above if you will cut above yeah <laughs> Uh, let's see. I have some notes. But oh, so also um, one thing I would also recommend doing from like a itinerary standpoint, I don't recommend this for big groups because it's just too hard. But Cosmopolitan has a floor and it's kind of their restaurant floor. And if you're with one or two people, maybe three, you can go to uh, Haleo, Momofuku, Zuma, Zuma, Blue Ribbon. They're all on the same. They're literally all 30 seconds apart. So if you wanted to kind of, you know, if you had a short trip and you only had a couple of days and you wanted to, you could do a quick dine around you know, a couple hours, you could have apps, you know, apps at four or five different places and drinks at four different places and get a complete, you know, uh, to every restaurant, very different. So you could, you know, go get uh, some tapas at, uh, at start at Haleo and, and, you know, do a, they do a sangria happy hour, you know, all these Spanish tapas and you can move over and get some, you know, either at Zuma, great Japanese, you know, sushi rolls or, 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 you know, yeah, just sushi in general, just like, they, they almost have a, they have lots of fish, lots of traditional sushi dishes, but they also have lots of sort of, uh, you know, Japanese pub dishes as well. Uh, and then obviously Blue Ribbon, you know, finished with a little bite of, you know, their famous fried chicken. And it's literally all 
with you know they're next door to each other they're like they're one by when you walk take the escalator up to the floor and it's like you know there's seven or eight restaurants that those are the four or five that i i would recommend and then finish with drinks down one floor there's a ghost donkey you can get you know late night uh uh luxury nachos and margaritas uh agave based spirits uh so that's like it's just you know i won't recommend doing that with a large group because you know it wouldn't it would be tough but if it was just one or two people you can pop into all those bars you could have a great great night and, and just stay in one location so those would be some of my favorites on this trip what's your uh what's the off strip uh recommendations i feel like that's where the true the true uh you know, professionals are, are, you know, like kind of the service industry people who are on an off night or after work, where are you going? Yeah. yeah. You know, you're speaking my language. All right. So I made a list of my own. So I'm a really big fan of Chinatown, right? So Chinatown, uh, it, it, it started off as just this, you know, this group of strip malls and lots of uh, Asian entrepreneurs who, you know, worked in restaurants on the strip and have this entrepreneurial spirit and open up a place off the strip. And that really started in the eighties and it's really grown into a full destination. And, there's late, you know, the, the variety of Asian cuisine that you can get on this uh, street, it's like, you know, two, three miles long, kind of rivals probably anywhere in the country, I would imagine, you know, late night, you know, noodles, places that have great wine lists, places that don't even have alcohol, it's all BYOB. Uh, it, it just, you know, it runs the gamut. So what I did is I put together a list of my favorites, and then I pulled some local chefs that I love, and the Venn diagram of where they overlap, I have their favorites. So I have kind of a two-tier list. So I uh, love it. Yeah. So so I and also I'm I not there anymore. I I I, my, I had some friends and I uh, bought a bar in 2015. It, it's in Chinatown, and so we we're kind of like early adopter, a little ahead of the curve. Put uh, your money where your mouth is. Yeah. I love it. It's so it's, uh, it's uh, uh, live music, uh, pizza, right in the heart of. Chinatown, seven nights a week, live music, you know, mostly blues. It's, it's an amazing place. So that is a huge uh, destination and a huge service industry destination of, you know, after work, grabbing a beer. But around there, so why I'm so familiar with Chinatown is because I sort of had a business base there and, you know, got to know some of the other businesses in the area. So um, Lamai is a, a great restaurant. It's a Thai restaurant. Uh, even though you haven't been to Vegas, you may have heard of Lotus of Siam, which is sort of a world-famous Thai restaurant. He's related to the owners of that and worked there. He developed their wine program uh, over the years and then struck out on his own. He's a sommelier who, who cooks. Uh, and so you can, you know, you're looking at uh, very inexpensive wine uh, prices um, and delicious uh, kind of sort of chef-driven Thai food. You know, sometimes uh, just, just amazing. The best, the best chicken wings I've ever had. They do a Penang curry that's amazing. Um, crab fried rice that's just you know it's great and and the and the wine list is um, you know talking about uh, premier crew burgundy or you know, uh, you know just amazing labels uh, you know lots of German Riesling but not all German Riesling uh, which some of some Asian restaurants will just get uh, only high acid whites which I definitely recommend you know it's probably the best pairing with you know most a lot of Asian food but you know some people just don't drink white or they don't they won't try a off dry wine. And so he's put together a nice list of lower alcohol reds, um, you know, some natural wines that just, that just, they don't bump in. Maybe they don't, maybe it's not the best technical pairing, but they stand alone and they don't bump into the food a lot. So Lamaya is, is great. Um, there's a restaurant called China Mama, which is kind of a, uh, um, it, it, they don't have alcohol at all. And they have uh, the micro tofu there is the best I've ever had. Uh, it is, it, it's in a strip mall, but it is literally you there's restaurants on the strip that that are probably 
you know, three times the price and, and half the value as far as what you get from a culinary standpoint. And that's a, that's a once a month visit for me and friends, for sure. That's, that's definitely on my list. Um, Raku is a Japanese, it's the Kaya. They do a tofu dish there. Everything on the menu is amazing. Uh, uh, it's yaki a lot, uh, but they do a, a, a tofu dish that is life-changing. Like, it's like, you look at it and you're like, you know, this isn't for me. Like someone else ordered it the first time I was there. Yeah, I'll take a bite, but this isn't, this isn't my jam. And then you, you taste it and you're just like transported and you're like, whoa, what just happened? So that, that's, a, that's a great, great restaurant. Um, and there's so many options. Um, Shanghai Taste, Chengdu Taste, all these different variations of sort of um, you know, Chinese food, but from different regions and different points of view. There's a great, uh, so, so I'll skip to my other list. So the Venn diagram list, there's a lot of mine on there, but um, Yunnan Tasty Garden, is not a restaurant that I've tried before, but I pulled four or five people and it came up three times. So the chef is named Alan Mardanovich. He's a free agent currently, but he was a chef at uh, Le Cirque locally. He swears by that dish for sure. Uh, Shanghai Taste is a great restaurant. Uh, Adam Sobel, good friend of mine and chef at Mina Group. He's a world-class chef. He won, he won Grand Cochon a few years ago. Uh, he swears by the Zhaolin Bao at uh, Shanghai Taste. Three people mentioned that dish. Three chefs mentioned that dish. So that's amazing. Um, and then there's a Hachi is a, uh, a yakitori place. You know, izakaya as well. Open late. You know, beers and and, uh, and Japanese food. More casual. Amazing. And then there's a hundred more in Chinatown. But like that's a good start for sure. Any Korean restaurants? Yes, for sure. There's uh, Gong. So the Korean restaurant, the best one is called Gong. It's not. It's more suburban. It's probably a, you know, 15 minute drive from the heart of the strip. Uh, it's not in Chinatown, but that's the best. There are some good uh, Korean uh, barbecue places on a Korean restaurants, Korean barbecue uh, in Chinatown. But the best is, in my opinion, is, is is not in that neighborhood. But it's very worth you know taking an Uber if you're if you're looking. Awesome. God. Some uh, other outside. So there's another area outside. There's, one thing, cool project that I have some friends are working on. So there's also sort of an arts district. It's not really called Midtown, but you should probably call it, you know, Midtown because it's halfway between sort of the, the Strip and Chinatown. And also when Chinatown is sort of almost adjacent to the Strip. So you've never been here, but like literally it's, um, the street is called Spring Mountain Road. Spring Mountain Road bisects um, is it is adjacent to like the Venetian. It's literally a five minute drive to, to the area that I'm talking about. The the secondary area I'm talking about, the arts district, is kind of a you know a gentrified area. It's an emerging area. Uh, it is uh, there's some great restaurants there. S James Trees is doing a great job, handmade pastas and uh, you know it's called Esther's Kitchen, sort of a, a contemporary you know calatal if you will, but but great neighborhood restaurant, local restaurant. Um, there's a wine bar that really focuses on natural wines called uh, Giragiste that's uh, popped up, you know, right before COVID that, you know, really kills it. They do like 30 wines by the glass and, you know, tons of, you know, pet nats and, you know, cool things that, you know, really, really great, uh, a really great curated list. It's a wine shop and a wine bar. They don't really do any food, but they do, uh, there'll be a different, you know, food truck parked out front or um, different pop-ups that might have in the neighborhood. Uh, that That's just great. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's so much to do, but there's a project that is really cool. It's called Vegas Test Kitchen. A friend of mine uh, who's done a lot of events kind of, uh, you know, is running it. And uh, it's great because during the day, it's like pastries and, um, and like, you know, sandwiches and things. But at night, 
it's like a rotating, uh, it's, it's different chefs who are sort of testing out concepts. And uh, the, the nights are you know, sold as uh, tickets. So you might do a Taco Tuesday, for example, and the same chef's doing it for four weeks in a row. You, they, you buy tickets for the event, so you, they know exactly how many they've sold, they know exactly what to prep for. Uh, and then they get this uh, feedback, you know, it's like recipe testing and feedback from these guests um, that they will kind of fold into a brick and mortar of their own. And so it's really great because they will do custom menus and, and, then, and they're able to, you know, like I said, recipe test, but also, um, you know, gain some momentum for their brand by, you know, people come, you can you know, see their social channels, follow them on social before they even have a restaurant. So by the time they're ready to launch their restaurant, they already have a following. They have people sort of clamoring to sort of get in. You can imagine a chef that is um, opening a second or third location. They have a following and if someone's opening, you know, uh, uh, has a French restaurant or opening sort of an Italian, you're, you're going you're gonna to gain a lot of traction from one to the other. But if you haven't, if you're just striking out on your own for the first time, it can be very difficult to sort of, it takes time and time to build your that that client bit, that client that repeat business, and uh, this project is allowing people to get to do that before they even have a restaurant, so that maybe they can hit the ground running. So there's two or three brick and mortars that are kind of spun off of this uh, that are being you know in the planning stages. So that's a great great. It's it's got to think ahead a little bit more on that one because you can't really just pop in. It's usually a, a ticketed event, but it's it's worth definitely checking out. What was the name of of, of your bar? Uh, the sand dollar, uh, yeah, the sand dollar, very the lead. The sand dollar uh, lounge, and we awesome. do, uh, we do, you know, it's a. I'm not there. I'm not there anymore. I I I left in January, but uh, my partner, my old partner, still still running. Uh, we do artisan pizza. Just all we do for food is pizza, and uh, you know, it's a great. It's a dive for sure. It's you know, but it's a proper dive, but with you know a lot of hospitality professionals running it. So you know, great you know craft beer selection. Uh, you know, obviously, our, you know, great cocktail list, you know, it's a lot of bourbon, uh, for sure, kind of a whiskey bar. So you can go in there and get a, a high life and a shot, or you can, you know, have a really well made old fashioned, or you can get, you know, a, uh, a, a Cantillon off the reserve beer list for 80 bucks, if that's what you want, all in the same place. So we have Pierre Peters and half bottles uh, for, you know, because it is definitely a chef, sommelier, uh, you know, restaurant worker hangout. So yeah, you, at, at the end of the night, nine times out of 10, you just want to, you know, high life. But there are people who, you know, we, we, we sold cases and cases of half bottles to Pierre Peters. Like it was unbelievable. I was like, you know, I, I it was my idea. I was like, we had some, you know, bullshit sparkling by the glass. It wasn't great, but we just didn't want to keep it open and go. It was like, so we went to half bottles and we, we, we oh, sold them. I love half bottles. Oh, half bottles great. Rule. So, yeah. So half bottles of champagne, especially. So yeah, Santa is definitely a special place for sure. Yeah. And I got to shout out one other place. It's not, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not, it's, uh, it's in this dive bar, weird location, but uh, a guy I just met, his name is Robbie Cunningham. He's doing like the best square pizzas I've ever had in my life out of the shoebox kitchen. Uh, he does these Detroit style pizzas that are based on, I've never been to Detroit, but I guess there's a Jets there. A Jets uh, is a famous, yeah. you know, so it's based on that and it's, far and away the best square pizza I've ever had. So I, I definitely urge anybody in the neighborhood to go in there and grab one of those. It's called Gorilla Pizza. I love it. Um, yeah. I guess maybe one of my final questions, I'll, I'll turn it over to TC after this, but where do you put Las Vegas in terms of a food 
city like does it hang with i i guess i would think of like new york los angeles uh wh where does las vegas deserve to be placed among uh the 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 best food cities all the all the chicagoans are gonna are gonna get after you for now <laughs> <laughs> um you know obviously i'm biased and i'm very familiar with everything so but i would say they are ahead of the game when it comes to like just pan asian in general like the quality of neighborhood uh asian restaurants at all is is i would put it up there with any I would put it up with any city, even a city like New York or you know, like LA that has this bigger population spread. Um, as far as obviously strip restaurants, you know, they're great and they're uh, great experience. I would, the thing about them though, I would say is generally speaking, they're a secondary restaurant from, you know, it's like a famous chef's second restaurant, right? And and the, the staffs and the, and the chefs there are just as dedicated but, you know, I think it's different. I don't, I've never been to Carbone, New York, but I, I and, and I think Carbone Vegas is a standalone restaurant, but other celebrity chefs, I think the knock on Vegas restaurants is it's not as good as the original. And I, I, I think that's a fair, that's a fair uh, assessment. Overall, there's definitely outliers of both. There's, there's restaurants that are the second restaurant or that are better than the first because the staff and the, the chef is just, you know, maybe uh, I don't think that I, service in Vegas, I think is probably the best, you know, they make, you know, servers and bartenders make so much money. It, it's a professional job and it, and it attracts professionals the way maybe it, it, in a greater way than it does in any other city. So I think the service you get in Vegas uh, could very well be the best you get. Uh, and, and then some of the top end restaurants are better than their maybe their namesake restaurant but a lot of the restaurants that are second you know that are the second restaurant for a chef you know they maybe they're not they're not here as much and uh there may be a step down from the original where vegas lacks which what i wouldn't is neighborhood restaurants that aren't asian right so like i mentioned james trees restaurant there's a, a few there's a quite a few others but most of the restaurants in vegas that are um, there's not a lot of off-strip destination restaurants as much as, you know, there's, there's certainly not as many, and there's certainly too few. There's, 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 there's a lot, but um, compared to those other restaurants where you just feel like you, you popped into a uh, neighborhood restaurant and had a dining experience, you, that's where Vegas lacks. So I would put it, you know, definitely behind those other restaurants, you know, San Francisco's, you know, LA for sure. Um, Chicago has amazing neighborhood restaurants. You go, you know, a world-class restaurant and you know, before you go to a movie and you don't really, Vegas lacks that unless you're, unless you're just looking for Asian. That's where they really stand out for sure. All right. I got three, I got three last questions for you. What's, uh, <laughs> cause I feel like we're going to have to have you back on to just dive into a whole yeah, other for sure. thing of wine, actual food and beverage and stuff. But, um, what's, what's the most overrated restaurant in your opinion? Uh, overrated restaurant uh, or just or just past its prime even yeah you know i don't know if i can answer that because i have so <laughs> i have so many friends that work in these restaurants it'd be a yeah. little bit of a stop in the face but i would say i touched on it earlier i would say that there's a lot of restaurants that um you know they sort of I, I'll, I'll put it out there when when resort in general i would say there's a lot of great people who work there and they're doing some cool things but i just think that they're just a little bit too safe a little bit too conservative they had three steakhouses for example at one point four steakhouses on their property between <laughs> two at one point so they're looking at things um their their food and beverage men are looking at things from the bottom line up yeah. and, and so they're making decisions programming decisions based on what they think people want rather than just doing something excellent and letting it find you uh, they're looking at it like this has to be a success. So 
what's the easiest road to success? Let's build another steakhouse, right? Or that kind of mentality sort of seeps into uh, their their point of view at, at the win. So from my perspective, I would say a lot of the food and beverage offerings at the Wynn Resort are a bit overrated. Uh, excellent in some, you know, but, yeah. you know, compared to that to, you know, what they're doing at some other hotels, it's just, uh, they're just kind of a step behind. Just like believe in yourself and take, trouble take that, a few more chances. Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm going to get in trouble for that, but that's, that's, that's the, that's my opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, all right. And then yeah. what's your favorite non-Riesling wine to pair with like a, a good Chinese dinner or a good Thai dinner? Talking about non, non recent. Uh, I would say, well, I would start with low alcohol, high acid white, you know, and if it does not sweet, you know, so like, uh, if you know, obviously, recently doesn't have to be sweet, but uh, a lot of times you get a little bit of that, um, that that spice component pairs nicely with the, the sweetness. And, you know, if someone doesn't like sweet wine in general, like they're like, they're just off put by a Spatlesa or a, a Spatlesa or a cabinet, they, they'll just like, dismiss it but once you try it together the i think the sweetness dissipates a lot because that spiciness kicks up but i would say just start with um you know high acid whites so um you know something that's going to strip that palate so like chablis would be great you know like it keeps it's not necessarily going to pair you know yeah. uh, but it's going to strip that palate and every bite you know when you go to a chinese restaurant as well most of it's family style you're eating five or six different things you know at once you know that's how i like to eat or how my friends like to eat when you go out you want a big family style dinner it's hard to pair one wine with all of that so i like to go i like to think you know in those terms of like okay let's get you know something high acid it's going to strip the palate every bite of food is going to be clean and fresh and uh and, and it's just going to you're going to enjoy them together so i would say look for you know like chablis uh, it would be great. Maybe, you know, Albarino, uh, for sure. Uh, uh, those would be, you know, just high acid whites would be my go-to in a, in a, in an Asian restaurant. If I didn't, uh, if they didn't have a, if they didn't have, you know, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, your Raiders or a Niners fan? Niners. Yeah. I'm a baseball guy. Uh, mostly, uh, I grew up a big, big 49er fan and, and I, I, I liked baseball and during the 1991 playoffs, the Braves and, uh, yeah, you're Braves. Are you a Braves fan? Yep. So my next door neighbors at the time were brothers from Pittsburgh and they were Pirates fans. And so those playoff series in like 90 and 91, those game seven series, the, the, you know, the, the, those, those were epic to me. I, I, that was my introduction to playoff baseball. And I just, I was so exciting, like a three, two game. Like, it's like a ball hit into the gap and you're like, oh my God, is it going to get, oh, it's like these crescendos in baseball. That, that was the first time I had really, you know, football is a little bit different. And it just sort of, at, from that moment on, I was, I was, I was like baseball one and, and everything else too. And uh, I became a huge Barry Bonds guy through them. And then just coincidentally he, next year, he signed with the Giants. So it was just this, like, I'm a, I mean, like I was a season ticket holder for the Giants from 2010 to 2017. Uh, so uh, even though I didn't live there and, you know, I sold all the, you know, they were the hottest ticket in town. I sold them all on, yeah. on, on StubHub and then the market fell out of them and uh, I had to get, had to give them up, but I'm a big baseball guy. You know, Michael Mina, we opened a restaurant at 49er stadium at Levi stadium. So uh, when the Levi stadium opened, uh, he partnered with the 49ers. They opened a restaurant. They were a partnership. It was called uh, bourbon, bourbon steak and pub. So it was two restaurants, actually three, technically it was like a, a steakhouse of, you know, a hundred seat steakhouse, uh, like a hundred seat, 150 seat pub and like a 300 seat event space all in one roof. And it was, um, open, you know, it was open year round. And then on game days, it turned into the tailgate, which they still do, which is this date gate, which is this, uh, 
um, game day party that, you know, you, a ticket, you have to obviously you have to have a ticket for the, the, the game and then a separate ticket to get into this party. And it's all you can eat, all you can drink throughout the entire venue. Uh, and there's, you know, tons of events and, you know, old 49ers coming through. So uh, I definitely got a taste of that uh, love for the, those 80s Niners when I was there, you know, the Dwight Clark before he passed away, Joe Montana, Steve Young, all just roaming around pitchers with Ronnie Lott. And so that was a thrill for sure. But I'm, I'm definitely more of a baseball guy. Gotcha. So Bonds, are you gonna? Are you an apologist, or is it? Is it? Everybody's difficult. doing everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah you I'm know, he's that. just I'm the that. guy that got caught, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think obviously he was so truculent with the media for his entire career. I think he, you know, he he doesn't he didn't make any friends. You know. Yeah. He is actually one of the nicest people I've ever met. Celebrities. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. It was um, October thirteenth, nineteen ninety two. Uh, it was a Friday. You're, you're very good with dates. I just want to point that out. You you are very precise. I, I, I envy that. I, yeah, I have a very uh, strange memory for that. But it was uh, it was the night of the Evander Holyfield Riddick Bow fight, the first one, the, when Riddick Bow beat Evander Holyfield. Like uh, it was in Las Vegas. It was at the Thomas and Mack Center where the Rebels play, and uh, the after party was at the Mirage. And I was good friends with. Uh, a buddy of mine whose dad was an executive of the Mirage, so we go to this after party. And I'm in the hotel of the Mirage after the fight. It's probably like 11.30, and I see Barry Box. And, and he's like chatting with everybody. I don't have anything to sign or whatever. I just, I kind of go up to him, and this is, he hadn't signed with the Giants yet. So he hadn't, he was a free agent. And the, the hot stove was whether he would be a Brave or a Yankee. That was like all the talk. And I just thought, I, just, I, I don't know, I just, I liked the Braves. I just love National League Baseball. So it was just, I kind of said, please sign with the Braves. Don't sign with the Yankees or something. And I'll never forget this. You know, he's, he's very chatty. He's nice. This guy pulls out a baseball for him to sign. It's, 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 it's not baseball season. It's October 13th. You know, like it's 9 p.m. or 11 p.m. at the Mirage. And he pulls out a baseball to sign. And he signs it and pats him on the back. And then this, uh, he runs into this girl uh, they hug and they catch up and it was a it was a girl that he knew from college who was there with her husband he invited them back to like wherever he was like just to catch up and uh, i can and then i met him at baseball games i ran into him at fan fest he was on his bike he wasn't involved in fan fest in san francisco he was kind of like just on periphery out it was probably not a coincidence that he was riding his bike you know on that day but he literally held court and signed autographs for maybe an hour for all these kids, you know, just in his bike gear looking like, you know, in, in, just on the corner, signed autographs for my kids. So I, he's a complicated person. And, you know, I think everybody, you know, but he's my childhood baseball hero and he's always going to have a, you know, he, I won't say he can do no wrong, but he, uh, whatever he's done is forgivable. Sorry. For my concern. And, and it, it always fascinates me. Big, big cyclist. Yeah. Like I, yeah, exactly. I, I think it just happened after, you know, something competitive to get him. Like he's mm -hmm. lost, he's, he's lost so much weight. Like he's, he's almost unrecognized. Not, you know, he's just so much smaller of a person than he was when he was, uh, when he was in his prime for sure. He's like just a normal sized person now. And, you know, he was a, really a beast before. So, uh, I wouldn't say he can do no wrong, but he's definitely uh, one of my faves for sure. Love it. Uh, well, excellent. Benito, this was, um, you know, I, I really, really appreciate you doing such great homework, taking notes, uh, informing us on, on Las Vegas, as Tron said. We'll have to have you back on down the road to uh, dive in the world of wine and whatever else you guys want to go deep on. That I, was. I feel like when we go out there, we'll just 
hit you up and you'll be our tour guide. Oh, I, I want to, I want to hang in Chinatown. That, that sounded yeah, so good to me. No, that, that is definitely the move for sure. I definitely, you know, I definitely think, you know, um, I joined the, you know, the refuge earlier, you know, to, I found you guys through COVID. I've been a big golf lover for a long time. And I just, you know, I, was, I don't know how I, how you guys went over my, I think I was just working too much, but you know, all of you guys, what you do kind of went over my head until uh, I was desperate, but uh, you've I've filled a lot of my time during COVID. And I really became a big fan and joined earlier this year. So I would, you know, maybe after this, we can talk offline uh, sometime about maybe next year getting a vent here or something like that. I think we could, you know, do something like that. would be great. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, can we just talk golf a little bit? Cause I, I think as a golf destination. <laughs> You're Vegas, on the wrong podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, please. Uh, what, what do you got? Well, you know, obviously the, the LPGA is here this week. Um, yeah. uh, that's cool you know, for sure. There's like so many professional golfers that live here now. So I think it's, you know, there's not a lot of compelling golf, uh, compelling public golf here. Uh, it's most of the courses are, you know, they're built to sell houses. And, and so the average person comes, loves them and whatever, but there's uh, but as a destination, you know, like I think if you did a trip, uh, if you, if someone was out there looking to do a trip, you could do like a Southern Utah, Vegas, you know, you could do yeah. a Southern Utah and, and, and Las Vegas trip on the same, cause it's only two hours away. So that's definitely cool. So, but um, Boulder Creek is a great, great, I just put it out there cause it's probably not on anyone's list. It's a true muni, but it's run by Boulder city. It's not in Vegas. It's about 25, 30 minutes away. Um, and it's three nines. Uh, it was built probably 15 years ago or something like that. It's a great, great value. Uh, it's definitely muni prices for Clark County residents and for, for uh, it's, but it's not outrageous. So the different, some of the golf that comes if, you know, for, there's not really a lot of munis in Vegas that are, you know, worth going to but there's daily fees that are worth going to they'll give you a you know a $50 Clark County rate and then the, the tourist rates like 150 so that can be a little bit you know you know depending on what you're there isn't really a, a great strapped uh course uh in, in 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 Vegas but if there was it probably be Boulder Creek so you know, that would probably be off someone's radar and then uh just a compound that I just have to talk about is the three peat die courses out in Paiute um just there it's actually there's no houses. It's it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's actually run by. Uh, it's on an Indian reservation, uh, a Pi, the Pi Indian reservation. They, you know, as a income stream, they built this golf course. You know, my 25 years ago, and it was a Pitai course. It didn't even have a clubhouse. It just had a trailer and a big tent with um, uh, with gas powered uh, golf carts, which is the worst when you're behind a gas powered golf cart. But uh, over time, they built two two other courses and uh, complete. You know, they do tons of you know uh, tournaments, college tournaments. Uh, both courses do a lot of call tournaments. So just want to put it out there, someone is coming for getting a quick, uh, obviously the stuff on the strip, uh, you know, whether it's Wynn or Shadow Creek or Cascada, you know, no one has to highlight those. Obviously those are $500, $600 rounds, but you know, uh, those two courses maybe get a little overlooked and, you know, throwing them some, uh, I definitely just recommend you just for an experience for the average person, I think, uh, who's coming to town, that would be cool. Sweet. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, a little golf talk never hurt anybody, but yeah, so sure. I, I appreciate it. Um, all right. We, we will let you go. Thank you so much. Our, uh, enjoy the LPGA action this week. Is it open for fans? Are you going to get out and see any of the tournament? I, uh, you're going to appreciate this. I, uh, looked into volunteering, uh, and the $65 it wasn't that it was too steep. It is just, wasn't going to work for my schedule. Uh, no, but it isn't open to the public this week. Uh, and I don't know because it's at shadow Creek. I don't, 
that's just their choice. It could be, it's not, it's, it's, it could be. So um, other events they've had that were in COVID didn't option, but they've had some big events in the past there, like the match and those other things, they weren't open to the public. So the match play is a three year. So I have daughters, you know, two who played college golf. Uh, so like I'm a big LPGA oh, wow. fan certainly was in the, you know, when they were, you know, in, during that time. Um, so big fan of LPGA. So I hope they haven't signed a three-year contract uh, to host it at Shadow Creek, the, the match play. So I, hopefully next year uh, it's open to the public. I was very tempted when I looked at the schedule, there was a, a 6 a.m. driving range, you know, driving range marshal that, you know, on Saturday. And I was like, hanging out at a driving range would probably be the coolest way to volunteer. But I just, I couldn't, I couldn't really justify it. So no, I'm not going to make it out there. All right. It, it is. The driving range is awesome. I, yeah, I love I, hanging on the range. We'll yeah. see you in Gearheart in a couple of weeks too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Will you both be there? Yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. I look forward to it. Hell yeah. All right. We will let you go. Thank you so much, Benito. Uh, and until next time. Yeah. I can't wait. That was great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Rapper's favorite trapper.